Take now your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Numbers. Today, Numbers chapter 30. After our hiatus uh, for the Christmas season to look at and celebrate again the incarnation of Christ, we returned last week uh, to Numbers chapters 28 and 29. Today we continue Numbers chapter 30. And as we go from those two chapters into this one, the connection that you might notice is that we're moving in Numbers 28 and 29 from mandatory offerings to voluntary vows. There were some things that the people of God had to do on a yearly basis and other things that they were able to do to offer to the Lord uh, of their own free choice. And that is what this chapter deals with. Numbers today, chapter 30, verses 1 through 16. Before we read these words together, let's join uh, again and seek God's blessing in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you are the one who voluntarily draws us to yourself. Of your own goodwill, you have chosen a people to be your own possession. Help us as we read these words to see the grace that you have for us. Help us uh, to hear your word and to take it into our hearts and to rejoice in the one who gives it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 through 16. <clears throat> Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and her pledge by which she has bound herself, and he says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. If she marries a husband while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her, and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she had bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house, or bound herself by a pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it, and said nothing to her, and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows, or concerning her pledge of herself, shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow, any and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he has established her vows, 
for all her pledges that are upon her, he has established them because he said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, let's, uh, let's suppose uh, early one Monday morning you leave your house, uh, your lunch is packed, uh, your briefcase is in hand, you are ready for your morning commute, except that when you get to your car, you find that you have not only a spare tire, but also a dead battery. Uh, however you deal with that situation, you get your hands dirty, you call AAA, whatever you do, the fact of the matter is that before you can make any forward progress at all, you have two problems that you need to address. And such is the case with our text today. In Numbers chapter 30, I believe there is there's somewhere that the Lord wants to take his people. He wants to teach us something but if we're going to make any progress, it's going to require dealing with two potential non-starters. You know, there are objections that people have to a text like this. There's one objection that comes from people who read the Bible and take the Bible very, very seriously. Uh, and there is an objection that comes from people who are skeptical of what the Bible has to say. Now, for those who read the Bible very seriously, and I imagine there are many of us here today, Sometimes, people like us, we get hung up on the worry that, that this chapter presents a kind of legalistic religion that is very far removed from the New Testament church. It's about vows. It's about oaths of deprivation. It's about the kind of stuff that we feel like the gospel probably frees us from. And then you add to that the fact that Jesus, in the New Testament, tells his disciples to simply let our yeses and our noes stand for themselves and begin to think that perhaps there's an awful lot of distance between numbers and the New Testament. Well, then again, those who read the Bible skeptically, well, they trip all over the fact that this text gives spiritual authority to fathers over their daughters and to husbands over their wives. Aha, they say. There you go again. One more example of religion's tendency to protect the powerful and to marginalize women, to make victims of them even. And isn't that ancient patriarchal approach the reason that we should have gotten rid of the Bible by now anyway? At least that's what they might say. So there are objections here for the serious-minded reader and for the skeptical one. And if we're going to make sense of this passage for ourselves and for our Christian witness, we need to understand what it's saying to us. Far more than that, we need to see what the Lord is telling us about himself in this passage. That's the real point of Numbers chapter 30. It's not just about what men get to do. It's not just about what women have to put up with. It's about what the Lord promises to his people. And that's where we're headed today. Now, you notice that our text begins with a very straightforward command. Verse 2, read it again. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. That's the command. Whenever we deal with the issue of oaths 
and vows in the scriptures, we need to begin by recognizing that we are dealing with an issue that God never directly commands, although he does give commands about. To use more precise language, God never institutes the making of vows, though he does regulate the making of vows. It's similar. It's like the difference between something like marriage and something like slavery. Marriage, of course, is a divine institution. It was God's idea for our good, for his glory, and he gave it to us. Slavery is a human institution, something we came up with. And when you read scripture, there are commands regarding both of these issues, about how men and women ought to conduct their marriages and about how slaves and masters ought to treat themselves. So the Lord regulates even those things that he does not institute. Are you following? The situation is the same when it comes to vows. Vows are very different from slavery, but it's treated in the same way. When it comes to the promises, the oaths that people make to God, the Bible is stepping into a stream that is already moving. When it picks up, it it essentially acknowledges that people do make promises to God, uh, and then it gives us commands for what it practically assumes we're going to keep on doing. Now, that's a very human thing to do, to make promises to people, to God. Pledges of commitment are one of the ways that I think we instinctively communicate our connection to another person. And you've seen it. You've seen it on, uh, on the playground. One afternoon, two kids are there, and they both enjoy the same sandbox. And before you know it, they're pledging to be best friends forever because they've had a connection. And the instinct is to make a commitment. You hear it in the promises that parents make to their children. You hear it in the the secret vows that lovers make to one another, even if they never make it to uh, to the wedding altar. When we are connected to a person, we're drawn to make a commitment to them, and that shouldn't surprise us. Not if we recognize that the image of God is upon us. It's imprinted on our lives. We all have been made in God's likeness. All of us, whether consciously or unconsciously, and the masterpiece cannot help but reflect the hand of the maker. Because our God, whatever other wonderful and sublime things the scripture tells us about him, our God is covenantal. Our God is the God who makes promises and keeps them. It's how he shows his connection to the people he's chosen. It's one of the amazing things about the incarnation. The idea that the God who is absolutely independent of the universe that he has made nevertheless steps into time and space to keep the promise and the covenant that he made to save a people to himself. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17 spells it out. It says that when God desired to show more convincingly To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Previous verse says that he had nothing higher than himself by which to swear, so he swore by himself when he made his oath. In other words, God is the God who makes promises. He's the God who swears an oath by his own eternal name, and he binds himself to the people that he has chosen. And when we desire to make a connection to the Lord, we almost instinctively, because we've been made in his image, we are drawn to make promises. 
Now, under the old covenant church, those promises could be either positive or negative. They showed up either in making promises to give something to God or to do something for God, or they were promises to refrain from something for the sake of worshiping God. Both sides are present in this command in verse 2. In verse 2, it speaks of a man vowing a vow to the Lord. That's the positive side. And it also speaks of swearing an oath to bind himself. That's the negative side. And you can look all throughout the pages of Scripture, and you can find example after example of both kinds of promises. Back in uh, Numbers, chapter 6, the vow of the Nazarite, that is the quintessential example of the negative vow. The man or the woman who, who became a Nazarite, who took that temporary vow, took that vow of abstinence. They abstained from getting a haircut. They abstain from touching anything dead. They abstain from eating or drinking, consuming anything that came from the grapevine. It was a temporary personal deprivation, a sign that that person was set apart specially for the Lord for a time. Or think of faithful Hannah, 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2. She gives us a wonderful example of the positive vow. She prayed that if the Lord would, would give her a son, she would give him right back. He would be given to the Lord, lent to the Lord all the days of his life. He would be in the Lord's service. And you look throughout the pages of the Old Testament, you find vow after vow. You find oath after oath because Israel was a nation that was built on the promises of God. And as an expression of their worship, the people made their promises to God in return. And they were free to do so. It was not commanded, it was not required, but it was an option. And it was an option provided that they stayed within God's own prescribed boundaries for making promises to him. There are several important boundaries in the scriptures. The first and the most important boundary is that God's people must not swear an oath by any name other than the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his Name you shall swear. Now this was the commandment, among others, that the people broke back in Numbers chapter 25 when it says that they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. They entered into an oath of service. They entered into a covenant in the name of the idols of the nations. They yoked themselves by oath to a God that was not God. They must not do that. The Lord only must they serve, and by his name they shall swear. That's the first important boundary. Secondly, they must not promise anything that was itself sinful. God is not honored by the sins of men. He's not worshipped when we ignore his commandments. So Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 2, tells God's people to swear only in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. Swear by God's name, swear only that which is it was true, not sinful. Thirdly, and this is the most important boundary for understanding the text in front of us. Anyone who made a promise to the Lord must take that promise very, very seriously. Vows were not to be entered into lightly. They were not to be rash. They weren't to be impulsive. They were to be made in sincerity and in good faith because by the testimony of your lips, you would be held accountable to the Lord. As verse 2 says, all that you say, you must do. 
That's the point of verse 2. Whoever vows a vow, swears an oath, shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Of course, it's serious enough when we break our promises to one another. And when we make promises that we really have no intention of keeping, we become liars. We become manipulators. It doesn't matter the intention of our, our lips or our heart at the time. It might be that you told that child that you'll have ice cream later only so they would stop whining now. Right? You may have knowingly overcommitted to your coworkers because you just wanted them to think that you were competent. It doesn't matter the motivation. When we make promises that we know we don't plan to keep, we resemble the father of lies more than we resemble the father of light. How much more when a man makes a vow to the Lord and then breaks his word? How much more when we make a promise we don't intend to keep to the one who knows the truth of all things? How much more when we invoke the name of God, when we take vows to one another, only to find out that what we committed was far more costly than we imagined at first? Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Why it says that it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And actually that seems to be the wisdom that Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He told his disciples not to swear an oath at all, but the sentence doesn't end with a period. It keeps going. Not to swear an oath at all, either by heaven or by the earth or by Jerusalem or by your own head. Rather, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 37 of Matthew, Matthew 5, 37 says, Rather, let what you say be simply yes or no, because anything more than this comes from the evil one. The background is that by Jesus' day, the legalistic Pharisees had redrawn the boundaries around oaths and vows. The Lord had said, of course, that it was by his name that his people should swear, and they didn't want to be found taking the name of the Lord in vain. But they did want to make promises... Maybe promises that they weren't sure they were going to keep. So they decided perhaps it would be okay to make promises that were less than promises. They would make their oaths to God by something that was close to God, but, but somehow less. So they swore by heaven. They swore by the earth that God had made. Matthew chapter 23 says they swore by the gold that is in the temple. They swore by the gift that was... On the altar, they picked all manner of secondarily sacred things, and they made their promises to God on the basis of those things. That way, of course, the people around them could be impressed with how sincere and, and how serious they were. And later, if they chose to change their mind, well, at least they wouldn't be guilty of breaking a promise to God. That seems to be the hypocrisy that Jesus is condemning in the New Testament. Not the practice of making a commitment to God, but the hypocrisy, the bald-faced deception of making promises in God's name that you have no intention of keeping. And Jesus says, all of this comes from the evil one. That is, that it reflects the lies of Satan rather than the God of truth as we are supposed to reflect. So then here's the first lesson we learn about vows in Numbers 30. And this is a lesson that I believe applies to every believer in every time. The lesson is that we are to take seriously the commitments that we make to the Lord. We have to take seriously the truth that we speak 
as a representative of his people. Every husband and every wife, every church officer, every church member who has stood in front of a gathered people and made a vow in the name of the Lord, we need to take seriously the promises that we enter into while invoking God's holy name. We need to take seriously the things that we have promised to give to the Lord, those areas of our life that we have vowed to surrender. Because the Lord is not a man that you can lie to and deceive. He's not a child that you can placate with vain promises. The Lord will not hold guiltless those who utter lies to the God of truth. Therefore, dear Christian, our first lesson is that the promises of God's people ought not to be broken. The promises of God's people ought not to be broken. The second lesson is this, that the Lord gives his people the blessing of spiritual authority. The Lord gives his people the blessing of spiritual authority. Now, if you are a regular here, you will notice a pattern in my handling of this text. The pattern is that our text has 16 verses, and so far I've only touched one of them. (laughs) That's pretty typical. Uh, It's also the way that we need to understand this text because once we understand the basic principle that's laid out in verse 2, then the rest of it falls into place. You notice that verse 2 gives us a straightforward command and then the rest of the passage lists out what we might call exception clauses. Areas where vows may be broken and the person who breaks the vow will be held guiltless without incurring the judgment of God. Now, specifically in our text, there are, there are three potential cases in which an oath could be dissolved without penalty of sin. Take a look. Verses 3 through 5 tell us that a woman who made a vow before, I'm sorry, that a young woman who was still living with her parents, 3 to 5, a young woman still living with her parents could be released from her vows by her father. That's the first scenario. Then verses 6 through 8 says that a woman who made a vow before she got married could then be released later by the word of her new husband. Finally, verses 10 through 15 deals with the most common scenario by far in Israel, that idea that a woman who made a vow while she was married could be released from that vow if her husband disagreed with her promise. That's it. Just those three scenarios. Verse 9 is different. It deals with widows and it deals with divorced women, and we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But, But these are the scenarios that we have when a vow could be broken and the person would be held guiltless. And here it is that we encounter that that big non-starter that we talked about at the beginning. This seemingly repulsive idea that by even suggesting that fathers and husbands have authority over their wives and daughters, it makes women seem like second-class worshipers. The idea that if a woman has to have her vows approved by a man, well, she must be something less than a human in the eyes of the Lord. So many people read this passage, this text, and they want to throw out the whole chapter because it seems to uphold some kind of ancient patriarchal spiritual authority that the church should have gotten rid of by now. And Actually, they're halfway right. This text does uphold patriarchal authority. Husbands and fathers are the heads of their covenantal households, but they're wrong in thinking that we should get rid of that. 
Now, of course, anytime we encounter passages in the Bible that deal with any God-given authority, we're going to have to deal with the detractions, the pushback, if you will. It comes down to what we could call a suspicious reading of Scripture. It begins with a conviction that power will always tend toward corruption, you know. The idea that authority always leads to abuse. Therefore, if there is a passage in the Bible that upholds God-given authority, it must be a smokescreen. It's got to be a cover to protect the powerful and to keep the vulnerable in their place, specifically here, the women. It's a reading of suspicion. It begins by assuming that all authority will be abused, and then it goes looking for places where that abuse might be hiding. And if our eyes are open in the world in which we live, we have to have some sensitivity to those who approach the scriptures that way. Because we see it all around us, the truth of the matter, that power is often abused. That authority often is corrupted. And there are husbands who take advantage of their wives. There are churches who walk all over their members. There are governments that terrorize the people they ought to be protecting. There is enough evidence in the sinful world around us to lead many of us into that suspicious place where authority is distrusted by default. But yet if we know the God who gave us this text, if we understand the way that he laid down his claim to earthly authority in the person of his son, his claim not to abuse his bride, but to save her to himself. If we recognize that these commandments come from the God who shelters us perfectly under the protection of his lordship, if we really know the God who gave us this word, then we don't have to be suspicious of what he's telling us. We don't have to wonder what might be hiding behind these verses or if maybe this is a cover for marginalization or just maintaining the status quo. And once we've gotten rid of that suspicion, if you actually pay attention to what's happening in the verses, there is no room here for thinking that this spiritual authority was meant to be anything other than a blessing to the daughters of God's church. Notice what these verses are actually saying. First, they're saying in this ancient patriarchal society that women can actually make vows to God. Even young women are able to make vows for themselves. Even girls, we would call them, still living in their father's homes, were personally able to dedicate themselves to the Lord through oaths that had binding significance. It shows up in verse 4, it shows up in verse 7, it shows up in verse 11. If a woman makes a vow and her father or her husband says nothing, then it stands. The language is that it will continue to stand. It was already standing. And it will simply continue in the way that she made it, that promise that she made. It will remain as the moment in which she vowed it. There's not a hint that a woman's vows are somehow second class simply because she's a woman. Or that they need to be pre-approved by a man before they can be made. As proof of that, verse 9. It deals with women who are not previously engaged in a relationship of covenantal headship. Widows and divorced women. Women who are not under the authority of a husband or a father. And it says, any vow of a widow or a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. 
The widow doesn't go have, to, have to go find her son and say, what do you think about this? Should I make this vow? No. She is an agent before the Lord. She can make a choice. She can make a vow. She can make a vow to the Lord. Where there is no pre-existing relationship of headship, a woman doesn't need anybody else's help to make a promise to the Lord. She can do that. She can make a vow for herself. Second, there is an authority, there's a right that's given to fathers and husbands in this passage, but it is only the right to release their wives or to release their daughters from the vows that they have made. In political terms, we call it veto power. It's simply the option to say no where someone else has said yes. There's no indication that a father can make a vow binding his daughter on her behalf. There is no indication that a husband gets to make an oath uh, in, his, uh, in his wife's stead. The extent of the authority reaches only to what we would call releasing her from the restrictions of her own self-imposed promise. Excuse me. Verse 13 contains the clearest language, though you'll notice that the same principle is, is throughout all of these other scenarios. Verse 13, any vow or any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish. That is, he may do so passively, through silence. He doesn't actually have to do anything. And the footnote, you notice, says that he may allow it to stand. So any vow or binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish, he may allow it to stand, or her husband may make void. It's the power of releasing. That's it. And what's more, that power of releasing had to be exercised within God's specific given boundaries. It had to happen on that day, at the very time that he heard of it. There's no option to have leverage to hold over her head later. There's no option to, to hold on to it and ruminate and think, you know, I, I might need this someday. I might want to exercise this later when it's advantageous to me. No, now is the only time. And when that window is closed, it's gone. He had the ability to unbind her from a promise that proved to be too confining, but even that ability had to be exercised inside God's boundaries. So far, two principles. First, women can make vows for themselves. Second, covenantal heads can only release from vows. And third, the purpose of this passage is to assure these women of the forgiveness of the Lord. This is the other element that shows up in all of these verses. It shows up in verse 5, it shows up in verse 8, it shows up in verse 12. Read verse 5 again. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. Let's imagine for a moment how this might play out. Let's say there's a young woman in Israel, we'll call her Miriam, and she's 14 years old, about the time that young women are, are getting married. Miriam's father comes to her and says, Miriam, I've made arrangements. You are to be married to Simeon. And Miriam knows Simeon. Everybody knows Simeon. His, his father owns the vineyard on the other side of the village, and he's, he's known to be a kind and a gracious man. He's a hard worker. He's a godly man. He's the kind of young man who would make a very happy home for a woman like Miriam. 
And she's a little nervous, but she's also excited. And then her face falls. And her shoulders slump. And she says, thank you, Father, but, but I cannot marry Simeon. Father says, what do you mean you can't marry Simeon? You're going to marry Simeon. It's been arranged. And she says, I I know, Father. I thank you, Father. I would like to marry him, but I can't. I can't marry him because I've made a vow that I will never marry. A vow that you'll never marry. When? When did you make this vow? And she says, about two years ago. You remember the year that that mother fell ill and we all thought that God was going to take her. And I I looked around at the family and I saw all that still had to be done. And I couldn't bear the thought of you being left without her. And so I I made a vow to the Lord. I said, Lord, if you will spare mother's life, I will never marry. I will stay here with the family. I will give myself to, to building them up. I will serve them faithfully. And I made a vow that that I'll never marry. This kind of promise that a young girl might make. A young girl who who loves the Lord and who loves her family and just wants to do what's right. A girl who can't possibly know the future. But now the situation has changed and she feels stuck. She feels wedged between this promise that she has made, which she knows should be binding, and this future that God seems to be providing for her. She can't imagine disobeying her father, but she dare not break her promise to God. And so what is she to do? Numbers chapter 30 says that her father can unbind her. He can speak peace to her conscience is what he can do. He can release her and he can tell her, as the word of God says, you don't need to worry about that because as your covenant head, I proclaim to you that God forgives you of this vow. You need not think about it anymore. You can go. Thank you for your love for the family, but you are released, my daughter. He can release her. That's really what these verses are about, after all. They're not about men controlling women. They're not about making second-class believers out of half of God's people. These verses are about assuring God's daughters that there is forgiveness with the Lord. It's about reminding all of us that our God does not force us into impossible situations just to watch us squirm between a rock and a hard place. Trying to figure out what do we do when we're we're stuck between legitimate authorities in our lives and our own desires for our devotion to the Lord. That's what this is about. It's about forgiveness for God's people. I suppose we could take this passage in any number of directions. right? We could apply this to someone like faithful Hannah in the Old Testament. We could imagine the kind of faith that her husband Elkanah had to have, faith in the Lord and faith in his wife. Because here was this son, the one that they longed for, the wife that that he loved, and the Lord has given him an heir through this woman. And he finds that she has made a promise to send him away. Surely Elkanah will have something to say about that. Surely he will use his covenantal headship to stomp all over her spiritual autonomy. And he does have something to say about it. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 23, he said, Do what seems best, only may the Lord establish his word. He upheld her vow. He stood behind her. He encouraged her, and the Lord blessed both of them for it. 
or we could apply this to the New Testament church. We could look in, in 1 Corinthians the way that Paul says husbands and wives, when they make vows of abstinence, when they make vows of self-deprivation, they must always be made with consideration for the other. And in fact, he says it goes in both directions, men and women. Perhaps we could apply it to some of your own marriages. Women, those moments in which your husband disagrees with you, and you wonder if, it, if you should submit to his headship before it might be more righteous to strike out in your own spiritual direction. We could probably apply this in any number of ways, but, but we could also simply say this. The Lord has given his people spiritual authorities to speak blessing into their lives. Not to nag, not to cajole, not to belittle, not to lord over their authority over those in their charge. I realize that authority can be abused, and it often is. But the Lord has given fathers and husbands in the home. He has given elders in the church. He has a good purpose for the authorities that he's established. He's put these people in place to remind us to remind those under their leadership that with the Lord there is forgiveness and with the Lord there is grace for his people. And so when we turn to the New Testament, we find in the letter to the Hebrews that, that elders in a church are charged with keeping watch over God's flock. They're to do it seriously. Not for themselves, because they are men who must give an account for the souls under their authority. And we read in Ephesians that, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That means they're supposed to lay down their own lives for her spiritual good. They are to follow the example of the one who sacrificed himself to present his bride as spotlessly clean. It means that Jesus Christ, our spiritual husband, our great high shepherd of the sheep, exercised his authority not with abuse, but with tenderness with assurance for his people. He gave himself up for the good of his people. He gave himself up to win their forgiveness by bearing their sin upon his body on the cross. And already in Numbers, we see an example pointing forward to the kind of sacrificial Christ-like leadership that all biblical authorities ought to exercise. Did you notice in verse 14, it says that a husband is able to establish the vows of his wife by silence on the day that he hears of them. He merely allows them to stand. But then read verse 15. It goes on to say, but if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them. Some time has passed. A mind has been changed. If he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. See, the situation is something like this. The woman comes to her husband and tells him that she has made a promise to the Lord, and they think it over and they decide it should stand. It's going to be a stretch. She's committed herself to something that, that will be costly, something that's going to be difficult, but she's promised in good faith. And like Elkanah toward his beloved Hannah, he wants to encourage her in her devotion to the Lord, and so he tells her, yes, keep your promises. May the word of the Lord stand. She embarks on keeping that promise and fulfilling that vow. And after the thing has been tried, it simply proves too much. Not because she's exceptionally weak, but, 
but she couldn't possibly know. None of us could know. It was more costly than she had calculated. It was more restrictive than she could bear. And now the window for automatic, assured forgiveness is closed. There is a remedy, of course, except it was costly as well. The remedy involved a pilgrimage to the temple. It involved sacrificing a very costly animal. It involved the humility of standing there in the presence of the priests and of the people in the intimidation of the sanctuary. It involved publicly acknowledging that she was not able to do what she said she was going to do for the Lord. That's what it will cost. And the husband who loves his wife has a decision to make. Will he allow her to go through it on her own? Or will he release her and take her iniquity upon himself? I don't know what you husbands would do. But I know what our Lord has done for us. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, our covenant head, bore our iniquity when we broke God's covenant, every one of us, male and female. He bore our iniquity, and he did it to prove that authority is not always abusive. He did it to prove that, that some promises will never be broken. Above all, he did it to show us that with the Lord there is forgiveness for his people. There is grace to those who come to God through their covenant head, Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's what we find in Numbers chapter 30, that with the Lord there is forgiveness. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us, and we pray that you would sharpen our minds not only to understand the ins and the outs of this passage, but, but much more to love you to understand the grace that you have given through Jesus Christ, the one who came to bear our iniquity, to be the sin bearer for us when we turned aside from you. Father, thank you that you have established every word of your promise in him, and we pray for faith in him as our only Savior, that he might draw us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.